This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on August 25th and August 26th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name's Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. A warning up top, we might be a little rusty. This show has been on hiatus since March of 2020 for reasons I probably don't need to explain. But we are back now, we are recording from home, and we could not be more excited to be partnering with our friends at Co-op Radio again. So let's dive into the show. My first guest today is Austin Chronicle Arts Editor, Robert Ferris, who is here to talk about this week's cover story, an appreciation of the LBJ Library and Museum, which turned 50 this year. Robert, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a very exciting story for me. Oh, good. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. In your story, you make the case that we all take LBJ, both the building and the person, a little bit for granted. Let's talk about that. We all see these silhouette images of the Austin skyline. And of course, it's the Capitol, it's the tower. Now there have been some of the skyscrapers downtown. You would never see the LBJ Library in any of those iconic images. And if there's a list of landmarks, I don't think people put the LBJ Library on it. But it is a major institution because it not only has all of the records of LBJ's administration. The fact that that administration took place in the 60s, which was a major period of transformation, and that the LBJ administration was responsible for so much transformation. I mean, talk about the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Great Society Initiatives. All of that took place there, which meant that the LBJ Library is a place in which the records of all of those events, how they came to be, are stored. And researchers, historians, authors come from around the world to look at those records. And my opinion is the books that have come out in the last, especially the last 10, 20 years, have really transformed our thinking about LBJ, about his administration, and about Lady Bird. We are seeing them in a different way than we saw them 50 years ago when the library was dedicated. You know, one thing that struck me in your piece was you really made a point that LBJ was the guy who was like, we need to open this and we need to open it now, which I think when we think of past presidents, a lot of them have been really secretive about what happened in the Oval Office, but LBJ was really the opposite of that. It's true. And he has actually a popular image as being a very thin skinned (laughs) and B, wanting to keep some of his stuff behind closed doors himself. But he had an idea that when this library was opened, that it would be different. There were only three other presidential libraries that had opened before his, and they were for FDR, for Dwight Eisenhower, and for Harry Truman. John Kennedy's library was being built, but it hadn't opened yet. 
the first three were just kind of let's honor the great man kinds of buildings. They were shrines to those presidents. And LBJ was the one who said, I want everything. He used a very famous phrase. This is the story of our times with the bark off, which meant I want everybody to be able to see exactly what happened and how we did it, good and bad. And there was a collection of, he wanted a permanent exhibit that looked at the controversies of the time. And he had a folder or box full of negative letters he'd received. And he pulled out a postcard from a guy in California that was basically like, you need to resign right now, you GDSOB. <laughs> and it was LBJ himself who said, I want this posted in this permanent exhibit because he was a controversial figure and it was a controversial time. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two components here. There's the LBJ library and then there's the LBJ museum. And the library is the, correct me if I'm getting sort of the, not separation exactly, but there's the part that people can visit that have rotating exhibits. And then there's the sort of the research, the, the home to his archives and to Lady Bird Johnson's archives. And in your piece, you paint this incredibly evocative portrait of the library's great hall with, I think, was it 45 million pieces of paper related yes. to his administration? Yes. That's, that's a number, all right. And they keep adding to it. I had read Robert Cairo's recent book, Working, where he talks about how he interviews, how he researches. And he, of course... He's written this four-volume biography of LBJ, and he talked about researching it there. And at that time, the first time he was there, he asked an archivist how many boxes, how many pages were in them, and was told at that time, 32 million. Well, they've continued to add to it so that now it is 45 million pieces of paper that archivists and historians and authors can look through. So that's pretty amazing. When you walk in the library downstairs, it's very modest looking on the ground floor, but then you turn this corner and it's this gigantic atrium and a staircase up to the second level, but that staircase is facing this four-story glass case behind which you see all of these tall red boxes and they just seem to go up forever and it was actually ladybird's choice that they should be this bright red because it just showed you're just kind of flabbergasted looking at it but then there are spaces on the first and second floor where there are permanent exhibits and there are temporary exhibits. Mark Updegrove, who was the director of the LBJ Library from 2009 to 2017, basically supervised a, I believe it was a $10 million renovation of the permanent exhibit to be able to give people an even broader view of what LBJ accomplished. And he said, I really don't think LBJ got enough credit for his civil rights initiatives. So it was reworked in a way that didn't ignore Vietnam, didn't ignore the negative stuff, 
but which also really let you see just how many domestic achievements he made in those five years that he was president. Really not that long a time, but we wouldn't have PBS or NPR if it weren't for one of the acts. He did an immigration act, an education acts. You know, I could go on and on, but that's in the permanent exhibit now. You also get some lighter exhibits, some of the temporary exhibits. They've done them on the 60s. They've done them on Motown. The current one, I think, is one that will impress a lot of people because it focuses on Lady Bird. And the title is Lady Bird Johnson Beyond the Wildflowers, because that's what she's known for, the Wildflower Center, her beautification efforts. But there's a lot more to her. And this is an exhibition that really takes pains to help people understand that. You know, another one of the points that you made in your story that really struck me was Obviously, this building is, it houses all of this history, but it's also been the place of some pretty historical get-togethers. Right. I mentioned Mark Updegrove. He believed very strongly in the programming initiative that was part of the vision that Lady Bird and LBJ had for the library. They didn't want it to just be about the past. They wanted it to be about the present. LBJ was only around for a couple of years after the library was dedicated, but Lady Bird lived till 2007, and she was very determined to see that the vision for the library continued to be fulfilled, and that meant inviting important political figures, inviting important civil rights leaders, military figures, anybody that was important in the social issues of the day was invited to speak there. When Mark Updegrove took over, he took that even a step further and convened three major summits, one on Vietnam, one on race in America, and one on civil rights. And for the Civil Rights Summit, four presidents, three former presidents, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, came and spoke. And then a sitting president, Barack Obama, came and spoke at that. That's kind of, that's amazing for any institution, but it really spoke to the commitment the LBJ Library has to being a library for the present and the future as much as a library for the past. And it's right in our backyard. It's on the UT campus. It's just sitting there. Unfortunately, it is closed right now due to rising COVID cases in Austin. They have temporarily shut the museum down, but there are online exhibits uh, represented on their website. The current director, Mark A. Lawrence, has basically supervised one of the most important things. The directors have understood that digitization is an important initiative for any research facility. And they want to do everything they can to make the important resources of the LBJ library available to people who might never set foot in it. One of the important things that Mark Lawrence did was make sure that the phone conversations that LBJ recorded during his time in the White House, they'd been opened up, Lady Bird said, let's make these available as soon as we can. 
earlier even than LBJ said they should be released. Mark Lawrence has now made those available. There's an entire website that you can go to and listen to all of these amazing phone conversations that LBJ had with Martin Luther King, with anybody who was a major figure of the 60s. What an incredible resource. Yeah. And a real lens into sort of his, I don't know, salty, folksy. What's the preferred adjective <laughs> in this case to describe <laughs> Lyndon? I think both of those are. Mark Lawrence gave me a quote. He couldn't remember who said it, but he said, every adjective in the dictionary applies to LBJ. And I think that's, he said, that's probably true. And I wouldn't disagree. Absolutely. Well, Robert, I so enjoyed your story. It's available in the current print issue of the Austin Chronicle on stands and online now. And there is even more defined online with you interviewed the last three presidents of the library. And there's some other fun stuff in there, too. So absolutely worth checking out. Robert, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op 91.7 Community Radio for Austin. We've just wrapped up a conversation about the LBJ Library, which segues neatly into our next topic. One of LBJ's landmark pieces of legislation was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in the year 2021, voting rights are, shocker, under siege again. Here to talk about that is my second guest, Austin Chronicle News Editor, Mike Clark Madison. Mike, thanks for joining me. So before we kick off, Mike, I do wanna underscore, we are taping on Thursday afternoon, You are hearing us on Friday evening, so we are going to be talking about hypotheticals that have probably come to pass. That sounds about right. I mean, there could be crises that happen after we tape this that will make it somewhat out of date. But right now, as we are taping this, the Texas House of Representatives is debating Senate Bill 1, which is the latest version of the election integrity legislation as the Republicans call it, or the voter suppression legislation, as the Democrats call it, that prompted the House Democratic Caucus to break quorum and walk out of the legislature now three times at the very end of the regular session for the entire first special session and for the first week and 10 days or so of this session before enough of them trickled back in so that they could finally gavel in a quorum. That happened last Thursday, so they've only been back for a week. This is only the second day of floor votes, so it's clear that this is the priority. If nothing else gets done during this special session, which ends on Labor Day, it's going to be this bill. They are not letting this go another go-round. And by they, you mean the GOP. This is air quotes, election integrity bill, their third attempt at passing this bill. This is priority number one right now for the Republican. And it's been kind of skanky, even just (laughs) in the last couple of days. I mean, anybody who thought, okay, by holding out for so long and walking out, the Democrats were able to create changes that make this bill less oppressive than it would be before. It remains to be seen whether that is in fact actually happening. Well, can I interrupt you for a second? Because let's talk about what are Republicans proposing? What kind of restrictions are they trying to put in place to, frankly, depress voter turnout? Well, that's kind of a moving target, and it has been a moving target 
throughout this whole saga, Texas already has the most restrictive voting laws in the country. You know, we already have voter ID that is limited to a handful of types of ID. We already have laws that make it difficult to vote by mail. You're only supposed to vote by mail if you have a reason for doing so to request an absentee ballot if you are ill. That we all learned through COVID last year how nebulous this was. But in other states, you can just go in and vote by mail the entire time. Voter registration has to be done a month in advance of an election. You can only be registered to vote by a registrar who is licensed in your county. All of these rules that have forever made it hard to vote. And here are some more. A lot of the rules that are being talked about are, on balance, probably not like as grievous as what you're seeing in other states that are going through this same process, because those are states that Democrats actually were competitive in in 2020. And so in places like Georgia and Arizona, they want to keep them from doing that again. Texas, not so much. So it's always been sort of random what they're going to put in this bill to show that they're doing something to appease the national movement about election integrity, even though this is a state that Trump won by five points. A lot of the measures that they're talking about are ones that are particularly problematic to people with disabilities and the community representing them, including like having to justify getting a mail ballot by detailing the conditions of your disability and your health status, sharing health information that otherwise you would not be able or required to share to the government having to extend some of these same prohibitions to the people who are helping you, having like, for example, your care attendant or somebody who is helping you get to the polls, if you have a disability or mobility impairment, they have to be registered in advance and may not be able to let you in. Otherwise, there's still the back and forth about whether they're going to be allowing poll watchers. Specifically partisan poll watchers. Partisan poll watchers. Right. Right. And the fear there is that the existence of them is going to be intimidating. Intimidating to voters, right. Mm -hmm. Or whether they're going to be able to limit the number of physical polling places using formulas that are going to make sure that there are fewer in communities of color. I mean, there's a long, ugly history of that sort of thing. All of this, yes. It's the sort of thing that before 2013, Texas could not really get away with as easily as it used to because the Justice Department still had the power under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act to require preclearance of any change to Texas voting law. Since that got thrown out by the justices in 2013 in Shelby County versus Holder, It's been kind of open season. The decision that the Supreme Court in D.C. handed down this last term in Arizona kind of widened the gates further. So right now, they can kind of pass whatever they want. And it's very difficult for advocates or opponents to challenge it in court the way that they used to or for the Justice Department to intervene the way that it used to. That was the crux of what sent the Democrats to D.C. through the last session, of course, was to help force action in Congress on federal voting rights legislation that would preempt all of this business. On Tuesday, the U.S. House voted to approve the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, 
which was kind of not in question and not really like a victory that we can solely attribute to the Texas Dems, but it certainly wasn't a bad thing. No, and it is a victory that, to be clear, they are claiming right now. Yes, they are claiming it very much because otherwise it kind of looks like they didn't have anything to show for their adventure in D.C. But in effect, yes, the John Lewis Act would restore preclearance. And if that can be put into law before we start doing the next election, then certainly the next 2022 midterms and gubernatorial election, then that would be a good thing. But right now, there are dialogue going on on the floor of the House that is what you would expect. There are lots of amendments being passed, proposed by the Democrats, being rejected by the Republicans. Andrew Murr, who is the representative for the Texas Hill Country from Junction, is carrying this bill, and he filed to replace the entire last Senate version of it that the Senate approved at the beginning of this special session with new text earlier this week when it got voted out of House committee. We're again starting to look at what is largely a brand new bill. To clarify, you're talking about Senate Bill 1 now. In the Texas ledge, right. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, like you said, it passed the U.S. House on Tuesday. It is likely doomed in the Senate, though. Well, unless, I mean, like everything else, they have to get over the filibuster. They're going to amend it just for voting rights bills or just get rid of it entirely or not get rid of it. That's the same battle that we're having before. But hopes that this might override whatever happens in the Texas legislature. Probably not the knight in shining armor. It's certainly not like an automatic thing. (laughs) And yes, the progress I think that they wanted to have when they were in D.C., when the last session expired in the August recess, beginning of this month, was for them to move the filibuster hurdle and get voting rights legislation in place. They did not get that. Enough Democrats started to think when they did not get that or they got everything that they could when they were in D.C. that there was no point in continuing to stay out and that they should come back and do what Democrats do. Either make things better, try to get amendments in on the sides, make sure that they're focusing on other legislation that's also important, various things that incrementalist things that Democrats do. But the majority of the House Democratic Caucus still is on record, at least as of earlier this week, as saying that they're staying out and they should stay out and they should continue to stay out. Now, some of them have come back for this vote. I think a lot of them might bail after this again, and we might also be looking at close to breaking quorum going forward, because there's a lot of bad stuff that there's also on the call for this session after the voting rights legislation. You know, we still have to deal with their attempts to punish transgender children and bad medication abortions and make critical race theory even more illegal and all the silly stuff. $2 billion for enhanced border security for Abbott's adventures at the border there's a lot of things that a lot of Democrats do not want to put their name on and do not feel any need to be around for. So is it going to be enough to actually stop progress during this special session? And what if that happens is still kind of up in the air. There's also the new-ish angle of legislation regarding COVID. 
because while the governor continues to issue executive orders that are more and more strident and dictatorial, there are people both, obviously, you know, local governments who are trying to save the lives of the people who they represent, but also even people in his own party on philosophical grounds who think that, no, this is not something that Abbott should be able to just decide for himself by decree. So there are several different kinds of bills now that have been introduced in both the House and Senate that may or may not make it through, including one that Sarah Eckhart filed just today to protect the rights of school districts to issue mask mandates. So that's all still to be seen. It's a fairly certain bet that after a bloody fight that a lot of people are upset about that this election legislation is going to pass, SB1 will pass, the governor will sign it, it will immediately get challenged in court, and there's questions as to whether it will ever actually take effect. But there's a lot of other stuff. And then redistricting happens. Exactly. Once we get through this hurdle, there's another one waiting for us. Yes. Mike, I know you're going to keep an eye on this story for us, and we're going to keep covering it. And I'm sure we'll have you back soon to talk about the grim ending to all of this. All right. And we have run out of time. So that is going to be a wrap for this episode. Thanks to my guests today, both Robert Ferris and Mike Clark-Madison. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Thanks also go to co-op engineers Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. Finally, thanks to you listeners for tuning in and for sticking with us.